0: Welcome again to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our journey through God's Word. Now, if you're looking for a church, a place to worship and connect with others, let me invite you to check out Calvary Baptist Church. We're located at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. and You can find out more information at calvaryfayetteville.com or call us at 479-442-4634. On today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is finishing our study entitled Lessons from the Upper Room with a message entitled The Heart of the Savior from John chapter 17.
1: Let's listen together. This is week number five and this will complete um, this series of messages on Lessons from the Upper Room. And I want you to know it's very difficult Uh, for me to bring to an end uh, the things that uh, we have focused on in uh, the upper room section of Scripture uh, in the book of John. That's chapters 13 through 17. Literally, we could begin in a couple of weeks after Resurrection Sunday, after Easter Sunday, we could begin all over again in John chapter 13, And we could spend an entire year in these five chapters and never exhaust all that is here. This is sometimes called the inner sanctuary or the holy of holies of Jesus' ministry. You've heard me refer to it as the upper room discourse. And what a dull name that is, right? That's kind of... uh, Uh, academic. I don't even like to think of it that way. I don't like to think of it as a discourse. I like to think of it as Jesus opening his heart to his closest followers the night before his death. And that is exactly uh, what's taking place. This is literally his last will and testament to his disciples. Jesus is showing them his heart That's why we've called it, Lessons from the Upper Room, the heart of the Savior. And today especially, we're going to see his heart for you and me. Now by the time we get to chapter 17, a number of things have taken place in the hours leading up to this prayer. The Passover meal has been eaten. The Lord's Supper has been instituted. Jesus has washed the disciples' feet, an expression of total and absolute love and humility. He has predicted his betrayal, and Judas has left the room. A new commandment has been given, a commandment to love one another. Jesus has even foretold to Peter. Peter's Uh, very soon, denial of Jesus Christ before this night was even over. He's given the great teaching of the way, the truth, and the life, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And he has promised the Holy Spirit and even given some information about the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit once he comes in his fullness. We talked about that last week. Jesus, in all of this, has sought to comfort the hearts in turmoil of his disciples. For you see, he has told them he's going to go away. And where he's going, they cannot come. And even with the promise of the Holy Spirit, and even with all the other things he's taught them, they no doubt were inconsolable as far as the thought of losing their master. Now, John chapter 17 is the Lord's Prayer. I know that you say, no, wait a minute. I know the Lord's Prayer. It starts with our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, and so on. You've learned that maybe from the time you were in vacation Bible school or Sunday school as the Lord's Prayer. Well, I want to say to you that that is not the Lord's Prayer. John 17 is the Lord's Prayer. Well, if that's not the Lord's Prayer, then what was that? If you remember, his disciples asked him to teach them how to pray. And he gave them that prayer. It was a model prayer. It was an example of how to pray. It was not literally his prayer to the Father. John 17 is his prayer to the Father. This is Jesus praying for his own. Now, you may have a notation in your Bible at the beginning of chapter 17 that this is the high priestly prayer of Jesus, or you may have heard it referred to as the high Priestly prayer. Jesus is our high priest. He was exemplified by the high priest in the Old Testament. But the reason this is called his high priestly prayer is it follows the pattern of how the high priest was to pray in the Old Testament. In fact, as the high priest prepared himself, "...for the Day of Atonement, the highest and the holiest of all the Jewish observances." It's what we know today as Yom Kippur, and it's celebrated in uh, late summer, early fall. But the Day of Atonement, the most solemn and holy day of all the Jewish people, it was symbolizing God's work in making an atonement for sinners." And God had given the high priest specific instructions on how to pray on that day. And the high priestly prayer contained three parts. First of all, he would intercede on behalf of himself. The first thing the high priest did was to pray for himself, that his heart was right, that he was right before he offered his leadership as the high priest. Then, secondly, he would intercede on behalf of his colleagues who are also in the priestly family. He would pray for the other priest who served as well. And then finally, he would intercede for all of Israel. That was the instruction. That was the pattern for the high priestly prayer on the day of atonement in the Old Testament. Well, keep in mind, the day of atonement foreshadowed what? foreshadowed the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, the sacrifice of Jesus. The true day of atonement, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That was going to happen tomorrow morning. So Jesus is our high priest this night before. He prayed a prayer recorded in John 17 by the uh, Apostle John. And we find that it followed the very same pattern. Jesus was the high priest. So this chapter, chapter 17, is in three paragraphs and three different people or groups of people that he prays for. First of all, in verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. We're not going to read all of those verses, but the primary thing he prayed for was that the Father would glorify the Son so that the Son could glorify the Father. He was always pursuing the honor and glory of his Father. Jesus did not pray selfishly when he prayed for himself. The ultimate goal of his prayer for himself was that the Father would be glorified in the eyes of his disciples and others. Then he prayed for his disciples, his colleagues, his other ministers in verses 6 through 19. We'll not read all of those verses But he says specifically a few things worthy of note. Well, all of it's worthy of note. But verse 9, he said, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those that you have given me, for they are yours. Now, folks, I don't know what you believe about the doctrine of election, which, by the way, is a biblical word. But here is just an example. Jesus said, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for those, Father, that you gave me. He's praying specifically here for his disciples. And he says in verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Don't let them fall away. Father, keep them in your name. And in verse 15, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that in the world that you keep them from the evil one. Give them protection from the evil one. And then in verse 17, he says, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The only way for us to uh, be sanctified and to grow in our faith is the same for the disciples. It is through the Word of God, okay? So that's how he prayed for his disciples. So then he comes to the third part of the high priestly prayer. In the Old Testament, this is where the high priest prayed for all of Israel. And now we have Jesus focusing in his prayer on you and me. Jesus, in this high priestly prayer, prayed for you. Jesus prayed for Calvary Baptist Church. You were on his mind that last night of his life. And this is what he prayed beginning in verse 20. Follow along with me. I do not ask for these only, speaking of his disciples... that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I. In them this is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> How does it make you feel to know that someone is praying for you? It was a blessing to me as I was getting read, getting ready at home this morning to get a text from Brother Les Dozier. Many of you know Brother Les. He has spoken here before. He is uh, very heavily involved in the work of the Gideons. And Les just texted to say, we want you to know that the Gideons in our camp here in Fayetteville are praying for you and praying for Calvary Baptist Church this week. That was a blessing to me that was an encouragement to me. How does it make you feel to know that someone is praying for you? My earliest experience with that was as a pretty young boy, when I was living in the home of my grandparents in Mountain View, Arkansas. We didn't have a TV. And so every night my grandparents would read My grandpa always in his old red overstuffed rocking chair. My grandma at her place on that left end of the sofa. They would read their daily Bible readings. They'd prepare for their lesson on Sunday. They would read the newspaper. I would just occupy myself. But inevitably, when it got close to bedtime, which was about 8 o'clock at the latest... Grandpa would say, Mama, let's pray for the kids. And they would start to pray and they would take turns. And they would go through the names of their children, all seven of them by name, and their spouses, and their children's children. And I can remember usually lying there on the floor where I was playing or doing whatever. And I can remember listening to them call out those names and always it would be in my mind, are they going to forget me? Are they going to remember me? And how it made me feel to know that they were calling out my name before God the most important one in their lives. It gave me a sense of security. It gave me a sense of purpose in my life. That God's going to answer the prayers. Because if he didn't answer the prayers of my grandma and my grandpa, he ain't going to answer the prayers of nobody. I was just sure of that. It's something to be prayed for. It is really something that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, prayed for you and me. He had us on his mind. He says, I'm not asking, Father, for these 11 only. I'm asking also some things for those who will believe in me through their word. And I don't know if you've ever thought about it or not, but every person that has been saved since the time of Christ and the disciples have been saved as a result of the ministry of Jesus and those 11 men. Because it was through them and their preaching and their evangelizing that the gospel spread. Though we are many generations away from that, we are the uh, result of the ministry of those men and of Jesus. And it's interesting that when he prayed for us, he did not pray for our prosperity He did not pray for our safety. He did not pray for our health. He did not pray that our businesses or our careers would flourish. Believe it or not, he did not even pray that our church would grow. He did not pray for so many of the other things that seemed to possess and fill our prayer lives. He prayed for one thing and one thing only. He said it twice that we would all be what? What? that we would all be one and then he elaborated on that in his prayer that we would be perfectly one not sometimes one not half-heartedly one but that we would be perfectly one and then he even qualified it further he said that father just as you and I are one, that they would be one. And then he told us, gave us an indication into some of the motivation behind that. And the motivation is preceded by the words, so that. You find so that in verse 21, so that in verse 23. So that the world might believe, so that the world may know. Remember, John's theme for his entire gospel is that we might believe, in the Lord Jesus Christ. That the world might believe. Father, I'm asking one thing for those people who are going to be saved as a result of the ministry of these disciples. I'm asking that you make them one. That you make them one. That you make them perfectly one. That you make them one like you and I are one so that the world may believe, so that the world may know. The word here is unity. He prayed for unity. Now, I want to say to you right off the bat, lest any of you worry or wonder what my motivation is, I want to talk to you for the remaining time that we have about unity what it means, what it looks like, why it's important and necessary. I think the fact that Jesus made that the focus of his prayer for us is enough reason right there. But I want you to know this is not a corrective message. I'm not talking about this in order to correct some problem that I see in our church. That is my responsibility to do that. When I see something. But this is not a corrective message. This is both an instructive message. And a protective message. And I'll explain more about that. When we close. In just a few minutes. So if you're wondering. Well man oh man. Why do we need a sermon on unity? We need it because Jesus prayed for it. And we need to understand it. And it's our job To protect the unity that we already enjoy and live in today. The word unity, by the way, is only mentioned three times in the New Testament. Only three times. And then once in the Old Testament. We'll read that scripture uh, in just a few minutes. But yet it is the very heart and soul of the Christian life and of the gospel. Without unity, the gospel becomes meaningless and ineffective in evangelizing the lost. When there is a lack of unity, people's perception of God is distorted and not understood. That's why unity is at the heart of the Christian life, the gospel. Literally, it is the heart of God's Word from beginning to end. So, a few questions. What is unity let me tell you a few things that it's not first of all because some things masquerade as unity first of all it is not union union is not equal to unity. There are many types of unions in the world. There are labor unions, there are trade unions, there are geopolitical unions, sports unions, gospel unions, and thank goodness that the baseball union and the players finally got it together so that we can have baseball and all God's people said, amen. Amen. There are all kinds of unions in the world. You may be a member of a union. You may have been forced to be a member of a union in your work. Unions are there, they have some kind of common interest, and basically it is to protect that common interest. But union is not unity. I never will forget my grandpa saying when I was just a little guy, he said, Son, you can take two cats. You can tie their tails together and you can hang them over a clothesline and you'll have union, but you won't have any unity. How true that is! Try it out sometime on your neighbor's cat. It is not union, it's not uniformity. It's not uniformity. You can take a group of people, you can dress them alike, get them all to walk in step and in the same direction, to play or sing the same words and notes, and you can even perhaps have a great band or choir. But understand, even that's not enough to create unity. Some pastors believe their job is to get everybody on the same page. That's uniformity. But I want you to know that's not my job. That's not your shepherd leader's job. Our job is not to get everybody on the same page. It's getting everybody to focus on the same person. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where you find unity. It's not just the absence of conflict or hostility. I mean, it's the difference between being a peacekeeper and a peacekeeper maker. What does a peacekeeper do? Wherever you find conflict, they'll sweep that conflict up the best they can. They'll pull back the rug and they'll sweep that conflict under the rug and try to keep it all covered up. That's what peacekeepers do. Just trying to get rid of the hostility or the conflict and hide it. But a peacemaker is someone who embraces the conflict, faces the conflict, and finds solutions to the conflict. That's what Jesus did when he went to the cross. So you see, unity is not union, uniformity, or the absence of conflict or hostility. Understand, it is, it is the presence of the rule and reign of Christ In our lives, it's not the absence of something such as conflict. For understand, even where there is unity, sometimes there's still conflict. Did you know that? There's still conflict in churches that have great unity. People don't always see things the same way, but they don't bicker about it, they don't flee and leave the church over it. They don't gossip to others about it. They seek to find an answer. As Paul writes to his letters to a conflict, uh, conflicted church in 1 Corinthians or to Euodius and Syntyche, those two women that he wrote to in another church and said, I beg of you to find and make peace between the two of you and walk together. Sometimes there's still conflict, but the presence Uh, and of the rule and reign of Christ in our lives helps us solve that conflict. What does it mean to have the presence of the rule and reign of Christ in our lives? And by the way, what's the middle letter in the word unity? It is I. And understand that unity always has to start with the I. It has to start with me. It's not if you'll get your act together, then we can be unified it's me getting my act together and that is it is me bowing to the rule and reign of jesus christ in my life and you doing the very same thing and that means that we are living as though christ's kingdom was already present that's what we are to do as a church to live as though christ rule and reign was already here It is finding not the least common denominator that holds us together. It is rising to the leadership of the highest common denominator. What is that? It is God, the Holy Spirit, living in our lives. That's the highest common denominator that there is that brings people together. And that's why a church that focuses on just trying to find people that are like me, that are like us, that have all the same likes and dislikes, That's not an expression of a gospel church. It is the fact that God brings together people that would never find their way into a relationship with each other in any other place on earth except in the presence of God the Holy Spirit that takes people of all backgrounds, of all ages, of all ethnic groups, of all kinds of life experiences, and they come together under the leadership of Christ. Now, that is something the world, a divided world, is longing to see. We have the highest common denominator. It's not the absence of hostility, but it is the presence of the Prince of Peace. That's what unity is. Well, what has the scripture, how has God shown us How has God taught us about unity? And I think of several different ways that that we see the expression of unity in just the way God works. First of all, when you think about who he is, at the very core of who our God is, you see unity emanating out of what is God. God is a trinity, he is a triune being, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Not God just in three different expressions, but three distinct, um, uh, three distinct personalities that are three yet one. It defies explanation. It defies the human mind to fully comprehend, but that doesn't mean that it's not real. Father, Son, and Spirit. Not millions of gods like the Hindus or other religions, but one God expressing Himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, co-equal with each other. We find that teaching in John chapter 17. We find it in the Shema, the great declaration of who the Jewish people were at their core in Deuteronomy 6, where they would call out, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Therefore, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. At the baptism of Jesus, in Matthew chapter 3, we see the three expressions of God in one time and in one place. As Jesus the Son, God in the flesh, comes to John to be baptized. And you hear this voice out of heaven that says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then you see the Holy Spirit like a dove descending on him. Father, Son, and Spirit. The essence of who he is. Now I want you to think about something for just a moment. Think about the fact that When we repent of our sins and we trust Christ as Savior, we are invited into a relationship with this great triune God. We are in Him. He is in us. Jesus said that over and over again, not only in this prayer, but in the chapters leading up to it. So what happens when we who are in Christ we come into communion and fellowship with the great one and we bring our petty differences and our conflicts our lack of unity our selfishness our pride does it change who god is absolutely not but it does change And diminish the picture of him that the world sees. For you see, you are not only, as some have said, the only Bible some people will ever read. My friend, listen to me. If you profess Christ, you may be the only God they ever see. And I'm not saying you've become a God. But you are to reflect God in a true picture of who he is. And if a church or if people, if a marriage, if a home, if a family, if a group of believers are not unified with each other, they are not accurately reflecting Christ to the world. And so instead of seeing a God who is one, who is unified, they're seeing a fragmented God and they'll have nothing for him. We'll touch on that a little bit more in a minute. We see God not only in who He is, but in the way that He created. What does the Bible say in the very first chapter, Genesis chapter one? God said, "Let what let us, us, plural, make man in our own image." And that's exactly what He did. He created us, the unity of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. But also another expression of how God taught us about Himself and about unity was when and where He chooses to bless. That one passage in the Old Testament that uses the word unity is in a very short psalm, Psalm 133. I love this psalm. Behold how good and how pleasant it is When brethren, brothers, and sisters dwell in unity. What is it like? It is like the precious oil symbolizing the Holy Spirit, the precious oil that was poured on the head of Aaron when he was ordained and anointed his priest, running down on his beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. How precious that looked in the eyes of God, symbolizing the Holy Spirit coming upon this man for his ministry. It is also like the dew on Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is like the only place where there are any real quantities of snow and moisture that fall in the land of Israel. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life evermore. The whole country is nourished by what God allows to fall on Mount Hermon. And that's what unity is like among God's people. Read Acts chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5. The early days of the church in her infancy as we know the church today. And you'll find a repetitious phrase that they were in one accord. They were in one accord when there was 120 of them. And when their numbers jumped to 3,000 and more, they were still in one accord. When their numbers jumped to over 5,000, they were still in one accord. And every time it says they were in one accord, that they were in unity, God is blessing them. He is drawing people to the gospel, to Christ. Why? Because of what he saw in that church. What has God taught us about unity? It's who He is. It's how He created. It's when and where He blesses. And it is His desire for you and me. That's why He expresses it in this prayer in John 17. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. May they be one so that the world may know that you sent me and that you love them even as you love me. Can you accept this key truth? That unity in the church is her greatest evangelistic tool. The greatest evangelistic tool any church has is the unity of its members together around the Word of God and around God himself. Through unity... We reflect the Trinity, the triune God. And if we don't have that, or if we lose that, then it doesn't matter. We can stand on the roof of this church, and we can preach the gospel till we're blue in the face. I don't know what that means, but I've heard it before. Till we're blue in the face, and nobody's going to be drawn to it. Unless they see Jesus, the triune God, in you and me. Well, very quickly, what disrupts unity? What causes unity to be lost? And I would just say it happens on two levels. First of all, the source of all conflict is whom? Satan. Isn't Satan the source of all conflict? Conflict? Isn't he the one that opposes the work of God? Doesn't Jesus say in John chapter 10 and verse 10 the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy? I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. But there is an enemy that is working against you and me and against our work for Christ. It is Satan. He is the source of all conflict. But Satan can't do his work without some cooperation. And so secondly, we find what disrupts unity is Satan's power and influence over you and me specifically in our sinful pride. Our sinful pride. Proverbs 13:10. I hope you'll write down that verse. <clears throat> One translation says in Proverbs 13:10, listen only by pride comes contention only by pride comes contention another translation kind of flips it where there is strife there is pride just like the letter i as the central center letter of the word unity I is the central letter in the word pride. I just thought of that when I saw it. That's not, that's not in my notes. I just now made that up right here. It's the truth, isn't it? If there's going to be unity, it has to start with me. But listen, if there's pride in a relationship or pride in the church, that also starts with you and me. That's how Satan works through us. That's how Satan works in us, consider the high price of pride. It cost Lucifer his place at the side of the Father in heaven. The devil himself lost his position because of pride. It cost Cain the joy of God honoring worship. It cost Saul his anointing. Just as the Spirit had rushed on him, the Bible said the Spirit left him because of pride. It cost King Uzziah his health. He became a leper. It cost Nebuchadnezzar his mind. It cost the rich young ruler heaven. It cost the Corinthians God's approval and blessing. It cost Paul and Barnabas a rich and rewarding ministry together. The question is, what has it cost You and me. No one here is exempt. All of us are losers at some point in life because of our pride. That's why Paul gives that great section of Scripture, Philippians chapter 2, where he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit or pride, but in humility, in humility, count others more significant than yourself. And he goes on to talk about how Jesus emptied himself of all of his privilege from all of his position in heaven and how he emptied himself and became a servant and died a humiliating, shameful death on our behalf. Something that we celebrate not every day or not just every day, but especially this week. That Jesus was the very opposite of pride. In humility, he laid aside all of that and came to earth. And that's how Paul appeals to this church. Folks, if I will consider every last one of you, every last one of you as being more significant than me, and if you will do the same thing, pride will be rooted out of our hearts, and unity will be the expression. Not just the absence of differences or hostility, but the presence of God as though his kingdom was already here. Let me draw this to a close. What is the cure for disunity? Because that's actually what that last verse was talking about. What is the cure for disunity? Paul writes the letter of 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians was a very divided church. They had all kinds of conflict. There were people in the, there was a group that said, okay, we are followers of Paul. There was another group in the church that said, we're followers of Apollos, a golden tongue evangelist who did a great work for God. Others said, we are followers of Peter, of Cephas. This church was very fragmented, very divided. And when Paul begins his letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he addresses that right off the bat. He said, I'm appealing to you that there would be no divisions among you. That you would be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. That you would stop quarreling among you. And then, as he walked through that and talked through that, he kind of concludes that section of scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 by asking three questions. Three questions for a divided church. Question number one Is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? Absolutely not. Then, why are you? You are in Christ, He is in you. Why are you fragmented? Is Christ divided? And then he asked a second question. Was Paul crucified for you? He could have gone on and said, was Apollos crucified for you? Was Cephas crucified for you? Why do you make following them more important than following Christ? Only Christ was crucified for you. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Can you imagine us up here baptizing somebody in the name of Paul or in the name of some previous pastor of the church here? How heretical would that be? We are baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father, the Son the Spirit. We are baptized in unity. We are saved in unity because the Father, Son, and Spirit were in perfect harmony when Jesus was the one to bear your sins to the cross and my sins. Paul's cure for disunity was the cross, the cross of Christ. Now, listen to me, child of God, the cross of Christ And the cross that you are to bear. For we are all to bear our cross as well, right? To sacrifice ourselves as Jesus. And he tells this divided church, you've got to fix this problem of disunity. Why? Because later in verse 17 he says, Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The gospel loses its power to save lost souls. That cross and all that it symbolizes becomes meaningless where Christian people are not unified together walking in step with God the Holy Spirit. The cross and the gospel is gone. It is only at the foot of the cross that Satan's deception And divisiveness can be destroyed. It is only as we bow to a higher Lord that we can find true unity. Okay. That concludes our lessons from the upper room. At least for now. That's how Jesus prayed. His heart is laid open in these five chapters. And really, it all comes to a climax in this prayer for you and me, verses 20 through 26 of John chapter 17. From here, it's Gethsemane, and a long night, and crucifixion on the next day. So what is the heart of Christ? Well, it's all of these chapters. What is his heart specifically for you and me today? It is unity. It is a unity not based on organizational identity, not based on our denomination, not based on which version of the Bible we choose to follow that we think is the only true scripture. It's not based on any of that. It's based on spiritual vitality of a life in Christ. Now, I said that this message was not... um, corrective, that it was instructive, I hope you understand biblical unity better, and protective. Listen to these verses, I close with them, from Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. One, 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 one. And what is our job? To bear with, that means to endure patiently. Bear with. Each other eager that means endeavoring earnestly to maintain to preserve the unity the oneness that is in Christ child of God you the only person really that you have any kind of control over you are responsible for maintaining the unity of the spirit the power of Christ at work in our church. I thank God for you. I thank God for what we share together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your Son. Thank you for the Spirit. Thank you, Father, for the great three in one. May the same unity in you be in us every single day. May we not May we not weaken or diminish what the world sees of you. May we exemplify who you are. May the gospel be powerful. May we not do anything to diminish the gospel. And I pray that you would give power to our message, strength to our lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Our hearts is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.